Welcome to Tell Me Your Story. My name is Josephus Bartua. I've been very fortunate over the years to get to know some amazing, fascinating, and spiritual people. And the goal of this podcast is to create a space so that these people can share their stories and the lessons they've learned along the way. Thank you for listening. Well, welcome to the podcast. Uh, today we have uh, Jack Fedrick. Uh, he is an awesome brother and he is known so much in our brotherhood of churches uh, around the country, around the world. And he's a father and a grandfather in the faith for so many. And so I'm just so grateful that you made the time, Jack. Thank you for being on the podcast. Amen. Great to be here, brother. Awesome. And so I always start the podcast asking each guest the same question. Uh, what is the gospel and how has the gospel impacted your life? Amen. Uh, well, it's good news about Jesus and certainly has been good news in my life. Uh, I grew up uh, in a broken family. My dad left when I was young, left my mom with six boys raised by herself. Uh, but we had a, a really fun time growing up real close to my mom, but I never, uh, I, in the South, there are a lot of religious people. I was never that interested in church or the Bible, but, uh, coming to know the gospel really gave me a lot of gratitude to see what Jesus did for me and how I needed to live my life. So it really dramatically changed the trajectory of my life hmm. and it made all the difference. Cause I, I have all these relationships that help me to be godly, have a wonderful wife that uh, helps me more than anybody. So yeah. those are the ways that's impacted me. Amen. <clears throat> and yeah, how, how did you become a disciple? How did you become a Christian? Take me back. Uh, my two older brothers were baptized before me, uh, all of us sort of separately, but uh, uh the one older brother who's uh, now 80 years old, he's 10 years older than me. He and his wife took a lot of time with me when I was a teenager. They were a young married couple and I wasn't really interested. A young Bible salesman had studied the Bible with them and baptized them. I wasn't really interested in church or the Bible for that matter, but because I loved them a lot and uh, they were so good to me, I listened to the things they said about the Bible and began studying the Bible and was actually baptized in college that fall uh, as a junior at Auburn University. And the campus ministry was great. Uh, something sort of universal about campus. Uh, campus students want to change the world. They have a vision that they can do that. Yep. And I really learned a lot from watching their lives as well as reading the Bible. Amen. And so when were you baptized? What year? <clears throat> 1971. 1971. That's way before I was born. <laughs> I was born in 1993, right there. That's that's a little bit before I was born. Um, and which day? Which uh, month and day? October the 13th of 1971. Wow, that's amazing. And, and so, Jack, how, how did you meet your wife? And I, I know you've been married for almost 50 years now. And so how did you meet your wife? Uh, she was the first person that I sat down by at church when I went to Auburn University. Uh, but I had grown up very shy and uh, I was particularly scared to talk to girls. I never had a date till I was out of high school. Uh, I think I'd had three dates by the time I met her, but they were all miserable because I I was just petrified of knowing what to say or do. Uh, I transferred to Auburn University as a junior because I wanted to go somewhere that no one knew how shy I was. And I determined to do that. I'd already been studying the Bible. <clears throat> and so when church that Sunday, met her. And a couple of weeks later, I asked her on a date. And we had a couple of dates that fall, but... Uh, she found out that I was being a really uh, bad student. I was skipping class a lot, and she didn't like that, so she started avoiding me. Wow. So I picked up on that and uh, took a few months later to where she got to know me because we were around church together, and she finally told me one evening that she really liked me, but she didn't know if I felt the same way. 
And I told her, I didn't know if I liked her enough to get married because I thought dates were so difficult. Why would you do dates unless you want to get married? So uh, I thought about that for a week, asked her to go steady. And three weeks later, I bought a ring and proposed to her. And wow. she had to think about it for a couple of weeks, but she said yes. Um, we were both, I would say, a little bit naive. And uh, that was a good thing. We learned a lot together. And we both grew up in families. Her dad was an alcoholic. My dad left when I was young. So we both uh, wanted to find out how to build a family that would last. Hmm. And so we began really studying the Bible to that end and watching other families to see those who did it well and those who didn't and trying to learn those characteristics from them. Wow. Well, so, uh, that's how we met and some of how we built our lives. That's amazing. And so you've been married at the time of this recording next month, you would have been married 50 years, which is just amazing. It's such a major accomplishment. Um, yeah. I've been married for five years now, so I'm just starting the game. And what advice would you give to other young married couple of how to have a lasting, encouraging, awesome marriage? Well, first of all, be devoted to God. Uh, put God ahead of yourselves and ahead of your spouse. But other than that, your, your mate should be the most important person in your life. And uh, one of the problems with a lot of people in ministry is you're doing good things. And you can justify neglecting your mate hmm. in order to do ministry. And uh, God does not like that. It's not a way you build a lasting relationship. Uh, you probably know my friend Jordan Massey. Yep. He's uh, campus ministry here and really is becoming leader of the entire church as Tom Brown is uh, going part-time. But Tom's been training Jordan for 10 years and more. Uh, we were on a Zoom call recently with the ministry staff, and at the end, it was just Jordan and myself. And I asked him how he's doing with his family because he's got two small children and 1,500 disciples to look after. And I know he's very busy, so he said, I'm doing better. I used to let the church be too important. Hmm. Yes, that's good. If you mess up on your ministry, I'll disciple you. If you mess up on your family, I'll get a stick and I'll beat the tar out of you. <laughs> and Jordan said he would get the stick for me. Uh, please, please know that I don't hit people, but I threaten them a lot. But uh, particularly for those of you in the ministry, but really for all of us, uh, our mates should always know that they're the most important spiritual responsibility we have. Yeah. And we should not let the church take us away from those things. Hmm. Sometimes, uh, being in the ministry or being leaders in the churches, we can feel really good about being leaders and we want to do all those things well, but the best gift you ever give to the church is a great family. And I didn't say a perfect family because I guarantee your kids are going to have challenges just like everybody's do. Uh, they will be rebellious and all those things, but the church will see how you handle all those things. And through being a father, a husband, a wife, you learn how to love your children. And that's how you learn to love the church when the church is rebellious as well. Yeah, absolutely. It's so important to have like God, your spouse, your family, and then the church in that order. I think mm -hmm. it gets distorted. It's easier said than done, right, when you're in the middle of it. But it's so important. Um, to have that order in your mind as we're living our lives. Don't let your family be an excuse for why you're not doing a good job in the ministry, whether you're a paid staff person or someone like myself, uh, because you do need to be a great father and husband, but you need to, your family needs to see you leading Bible studies, reaching out people, helping the poor, being a shepherd, all the things you do, but they need to always know that uh, you will always look after them and do a good job with them and things. Yeah, absolutely. That, that, that's First Timothy 3 right there. You know, uh, a leader of a church, an elder, has to manage his own house so well. And so I really appreciate you uh, making a, a remark on that. And I remember talking regarding, to you. Yeah, go for it, Jack. 
regarding First Timothy three, where he talks about the responsibility of an elder. Um, we usually look at those like qualifications of an elder, but I tell the campus students, it's really just a list of character traits of godly men and women. Absolutely. You should start looking at those things now and building your life so that when you're old enough and have the experience, you could serve in that capacity, but don't wait till then to start looking at those things. Focus on that, learn it and build your lives around that because it'll make you a great person and a great leader and a humble servant. Yep, absolutely. Uh, I, so I remember talking to you, and you said that you, you spent some time in Boston. Uh, how, how do you remember your time in Boston? Uh, what was that like? And, you know, I remember hearing stories, uh, just uh, the baptisms, the, the, the mission teams, uh, just the inspiring times uh, in Boston back in the day. And so what do you remember about Boston? It was very transformational. Uh, my wife and I moved there because we wanted to, we wanted our children to grow up in a church where all the people were devoted to God. And in many churches that we'd seen in the past, you had a few people who were leaders that were really diligent and most of the others were spectators. Hmm. And that wasn't what I saw in Boston. Uh, and it doesn't mean that everybody was extremely talented or, uh, had all the gifts, but they just devoted themselves and the leaders called them to be devoted to uh, not just evangelism, but raising your family well and working on your godliness, things like that. And so we moved there and I gave up my job at NASA, kind of a dream job to go there. Wow. We did that because we wanted our kids to be exposed to it. We wanted to learn ourselves we thought we'd be there a couple of years and move away, but we were there 22 years. Wow. Uh, we became best friends with the Shaws, Wyndham and Jeannie, their children and our children matched really well. And we just had a great friendship. We did so many things together as friends and family. Uh, it's kind of like we raised one another's children. And uh, so it had a tremendous impact on my wife and I, hmm. and on our kids. We also learned a lot about, being in discipling relationships and how important that is. And Wyndham and Jeannie taught us in such a great way because we learned that being discipleship partners is really a matter of being best friends. And you certainly focus on the scriptures, you help each other to grow, but it's not a, uh, it's not some kind of manufactured relationship. Hmm. And so I learned so much from Wyndham. He, uh, took me under his wing and taught me so much about the ministry, about being a father and husband. Most of all, we're just really honest with one another. And uh, they asked us to disciple them, not just one way, but uh, we were helping one another. And uh, I typically reference Wyndham in my conversations with people hmm. several times a day because I learned so much from him. Wow. Each person I get with, I get the Bible out because Wyndham always told me it's important to have your Bible with you yeah, and get the Bible out and read together. Don't just quote scriptures to people. Hmm. So uh, I still hold those things being very important. I remember so much about the things I learned from him and Jeannie as well. Yeah. And their kids. I, yeah, I didn't get discipled by Wyndham, but I, I get... Uh, almost weekly time with Kevin and Melissa, uh, the, the disciple, me and my wife. And so it's kind of secondhand knowledge right there from Wyndham. And so I'm super grateful for him and uh, his memory as well. Uh, and you mentioned you worked at NASA. So, yeah, tell me a little bit about your work at NASA. What did you do uh, while you worked at NASA? Um, I was a project manager. My first responsibility was... Uh, improving performance of rockets on satellite launches from the shuttle bay. So uh, they had some problems with the, uh, you, put a, you put a satellite up in the shuttle. It's a cheap way to do it. And from there you spring launch it in space. And then you have a rocket that may propel it several thousand miles above the earth. And so I was working to improve the performance of those rockets also worked on the redesign of the space shuttle boosters after they blew up. Wow. Um, so kind of a general area of propulsion design and improvements. That's amazing. And, uh, moved, 
Right from there to Boston to be a part of the church. Took a job with Raytheon, doing similar things, mostly on tactical missiles for uh, military purposes. Yeah, it's amazing, Jack. You mm. are a rocket scientist. It's it's amazing to be talking to a real life rocket scientist right here. Um, mm. But how many kids do you have, Jack? I have three. You have three of our own, and then uh, several thousand that I claim as my kids and grandkids. Absolutely, a couple. A few of them actually grew up in our homes as foster children. Yeah. Some still live around Boston and things. But uh, three, we have two daughters and a son. Uh, and uh, about a little over 10 years ago, I was asked by the dean of Tuskegee University, uh, historical black college in Alabama, if I would move down south and help him uh, encourage young people in the black belts of the south to get a college education. And since I grew up poor in the South, I liked that idea. I also like to eat. So I kept my job with Raytheon, <laughs> uh, got them to move me here. And I've done a lot of work with the historical black colleges yeah. and schools around the South. And I still work around the country doing STEM education with kids. And I do projects with NASA and the universities. Uh, just anything to get the kids interested in an education and work with them on that. That's awesome. And and so you have three kids. Um, so let me ask you this. Like, uh, right now I have one kid. Uh, his name is Julius. He's two years old. Um, what has helped you as you raised your kids over the years? What, what, what advice would you give to a young parent um, in shepherding your kid's heart, uh, raising our kids in the Lord? That's a biblical mandate. What advice would you give to a young dad, a young parent? Well, first of all, be an example to your children. Uh, don't ask them to do things you're not doing. So let them see your devotion to God. Uh, make sure they know that you love them above anything else. Uh, children are going to push your buttons hmm. and, you know, disobey and rebel, things like that. Uh, we need to, discipline them as young kids. Uh, some of that includes spankings and things like that. Uh, really by the time they're five or six years old, I don't think we spanked our kids. They got plenty of those before that age, but by the time they're that age, you should have taught them well enough hmm. that they know where you're coming from and they'll obey you. And when they don't, you can use other forms of discipline because when they're very young, they don't understand just the words. So, some kind of corporal punishment. you got to do that to save their lives. Yeah. And as they grow up, they'll know more about it. Uh, teach them the scriptures. We began teaching our kids scriptures before they were two years old. Uh, Sarah, I remember more because as you get more children, they uh, you get so busy hmm. that you get what all you did. But with Sarah, uh, when she was 22 months, she learned Philippians 4.13. She didn't know what it meant, but she could say it. And I recorded it on tape. Yeah. During her two-year-old period, she memorized 50 Bible verses. Wow. There and now she uh, planted three churches. Uh, she's married, has three sons of her own, uh, two in college, one in high school. And she is married to Michael and she is the CEO of an international corporation. I tell the college students I work with, the reason she's accomplished all that is because when she was two years old, we taught her 50 Bible verses. Now that's not the only reason, but it definitely helps because she grew up with a lot of conviction and she still faced all the challenges, temptations, yeah. mistakes, things like that. But she knew where we were. She knew the convictions we had. So that helped her come back to the right on all those things. And, now she's teaching her own kids, a lot of other kids, how to do those things. Wow. But again, no matter what age you are, uh, they're, they're going to look at your example more than your words. Wow. So be sure that you're living that. Uh, they need to see you loving your wife, hmm. being very affectionate to your wife and vice versa. And they need to know that your wife is more important than they are. Wow. That. You know, they always have to respect the mother and father. And that will teach them when they grow up how to build their lives in that way. Amen. And, and, and Jack, what I really appreciate 
about you is you serve as a mentor for so many young people down there in Georgia, but then just around the country. I think young people just, they're attracted to you. They just kind of gravitate towards you. Um, and you're so accessible. You're so easy to talk to. Um, I think sometimes for the older generation, it can be intimidating to kind of be that mentor for the young people in their region. Um, and so what advice would you even give to an older person? Maybe they're empty nester and maybe they're thinking about being a, a mentor uh, to some of the young people in their region. Um, what advice would you give to an older person in, in a region who's looking at the, cam- the campus section and they're going, man, I, I want to be a mentor. I, I want to invite them over. H- how do they go about doing that? Um, yeah. Um, I would say uh, amen to anyone who wants to do that. I always encourage people, you need to learn from other people how to do that effectively. Don't just jump in and assume because I'm old that people want to listen to me. Uh, you have a lot to give, but you need to learn how to do it effectively. Second Peter 1 verses 5 through 8 talks about being effective and productive. One of the things that hurts us most as disciples, if we're not being productive, uh, you can be productive by helping younger people, but learn how to do that well. And uh, first and foremost, be righteous. Uh, I get with a lot of young men and young women. I'm very careful not put myself in any situation where there's any hint of immorality. Hmm. I talk to those kids about a lot of things. I'm willing to discuss anything with them to help them. I don't give young women rides in my car as much as I love them. I don't go into their apartments without a bunch of people being there. Uh, same for people of any age. Uh, I learned long ago from a brother that he said, I don't go into homes with women unless their husbands are there. Hmm. That'll protect you. We're all, even if we don't do something sinful, someone may think that we did yeah. guard your heart. So uh, if you're going to be working with young people or people of any age, Determine first, I'm going to be righteous above anything else. Hmm. Don't put yourself in there. And then learn how to be effective. I find that even in teaching, uh, I have seen a lot of people want to be teachers in uh, public schools or in the churches. You need to make sure that what you're teaching is being effective because it doesn't matter how much knowledge you dispense if that person's not getting something from it. Yeah, And sometimes... Teachers and speakers try to impress everybody with how much they know and their intellect. Intellect's a really good thing, but it's got to meet the needs of the people. And particularly with young people, you got to learn to be relatable somehow and be sure you know what they need. And uh, again, talk to people who have done a good job at this. I learned so much from Wyndham, from Tom Jones, from a lot of other people that I spent time with, Tom Brown. And when I came to uh, Atlanta to work with the historical black colleges, uh, Tom Brown had started a campus training program happens each May for a week. And so I asked, could I attend that and learn what they're doing? So I invested myself to learn because I hadn't worked with campus in a while. Yeah. And that helped me a lot, but get some training that'll help you. Uh, Maybe find somebody who's doing a good job of it and ask them, Hey, what kind of advice and don't be too tender with your feelings. Ask them to really be direct with you and tell you if you need to do something differently. For one thing, uh, if you dress really weird like I do, you need some <laughs> advice to maybe not look cooler than you do. <laughs> so, uh, uh, get help. That's not the most important thing, though. Yeah. They're not going to judge you on your dress. But uh, I go to universities, and I'll just sit down by the busy thoroughway with my camera and Bible. People come over and talk to me because I'm an old person. So they think I have something to say. So that's kind of novel. I don't care how it works, but uh, find ways you can relate to them. Yeah. I think so many young people are craving um, that, that knowledge, that wisdom uh, that we get from the mature. Um, And you, so you were born in Alabama. um, And so I want to even ask you, like, how have you seen race relations evolve over the years, um, being born in Alabama, coming back to Boston, and then going back to the South, um, you know, even working at Tuskegee, 
but how have you seen race relations evolve? I know we've definitely grown as a nation, but then there's things that we got to grow into. Uh, there's still work to do. And so, yeah. yeah. Um, well, I don't think we're ever going to overcome racial barriers uh, in general in the world. The world talks a lot about it, but they don't even know how to. The only thing that's really going to break down those barriers is Jesus. Hmm. Uh, the people at Harvard love to talk about how, you know, they're all diverse and all this stuff. But in reality, they're building something that's artificial. Hmm. Uh, the only way to build that is because you love one another. Hmm. Uh, after I, I taught in Tuskegee for three months, took off time from my job without pay, went down from Boston and taught high school there. Wow. Uh, while I was there, I met the mayor, uh, a lot of dignitaries, because Tuskegee is a very small community and it's very poor. So I taught at the university, but also taught in the high school. And uh, I met Fred Gray, who's uh, an old brother in Christ. He's, he was 80 years old at the time, but he was Rosa Parks' lawyer in 1955. Fred and I built a great friendship. Of course, he's accomplished a lot. He was a lawyer for Rosa Parks and Dr. King in 1955. Hmm. He was the lawyer for the Freedom Riders. He was the lawyer for the March from Selma. Fred's a very quiet fellow, but grounded in the scriptures. He's an elder in the Church of Christ. Uh, the mayor's sister... Mayor of Tuskegee, his sister was a professor at Harvard Medical School. Her husband was the president of a college in Boston. So I got to know them through that relationship. And uh, she called me in the coming months and said, could I bring some of my colleagues from Harvard to one of your middle school classes? Because they've never worked in a diverse situation. They want to learn how to. Hmm. I appreciate that. That's good. But going back to even my childhood uh, I grew up very poor because mom had six boys, very little money. Hmm. Uh, and we lived in the country, so we're kind of far from each other. But uh, a lot of our friends were African-Americans at the time. They'd come to my house and eat. We'd go to their house. We'd pick cotton together, things like that. I didn't understand that there was some racial barrier when I was young. Uh, one of our neighbors had a television. We didn't have one, so we'd go over one night a week and watch TV with this older couple. As I grew up, I saw the racial relationships being so difficult in the 60s. Hmm. I still wouldn't say that I understood, uh, but what I have understood since then is that uh, there are race conflicts all over the world. Yeah. People look at somebody that looks different than them. They don't understand. We don't take time to get to know those people. We never will build a relationship. And you see a great move on the government's part and in corporations and universities to try to overcome that. Unfortunately, they build it on intellectual pursuits hmm. and it's got to come from the heart. Yes. And I don't see any way to overcome that, but uh, except the love of God, you know, yeah. that's what motivates me, my gratitude. Uh, I went and taught on the South side of Chicago at my own expense uh, because I wanted to go where the poor kids are, where there's a lot of violence and crime. Because if I can get them to get an education, that will help them a lot about getting out of difficult situations, maybe getting into crime or hatred, hmm. and learn to appreciate people who are different from themselves. Yeah. So all of us as individuals, that's the main thing we can do is love one another, love the people around us, treat everyone with kindness and fairness, and I would say don't get our hopes up that the world is going to change. Uh, I grew up in the South. I lived in Boston 20 years. There are as many bigoted people in Boston as there are in Alabama. Hmm. Same for Chicago. Dr. King had a march in Chicago, and he said, I've never seen such hatred in Birmingham as I saw here in Chicago. Wow. And you still see that going on. So you know, the people in the North kind of take credit. Well, we were on the right side of the civil war. Yeah, they weren't really. And, uh, race relations are not a North South thing. There's bigots everywhere and we need to call them out and not be one of them. Yeah. But we need to do everything we can to love other people and overcome those things. So, uh, keep doing the things we're doing, loving each other, try to understand because there's racial bias of blacks towards white. 
as uh, racial bias in the islands of different black people. Uh, my friend from uh, Dominican Republic said the people of the Bahamas look down on him because of where he's from, they're both black. So be realistic about those things. Uh, racial prejudice is never going to be right. We should never agree with that, hmm. put up with it. It can even exist in our churches. And like I said, it can go both ways. So don't don't think because of the color of your skin, it's all another direction. Yeah. You gotta love one another. And what amazed me about God is, you know, with the promise to Abraham and throughout the Old Testament, all the way with Jesus going, go make disciples of all nations, um, all ethnic people, Ephesians two, like God. God had a plan. Even you, you look at Acts chapter two, right? The Holy Spirit comes down and the Holy Spirit helped the disciples to speak the languages of the people, of different people from different backgrounds and how God's plan is to bring the nations together. Um, and it's through Jesus we can achieve unity, even amidst our diversity. Um, and the world has some answers but like you said, it doesn't really fix the core of the problem, and that's the human heart. And the gospel is what changes people's hearts. And so, uh, if you look in uh, John chapter four, one of the one of the best stories about prejudice is the story about the woman at the well. Yep. And there's some things in there that are just hilarious. Uh, even the woman trying to protect Jesus said, "Didn't you realize I'm a Samaritan? You shouldn't be talking to me." Uh, because she knew culturally it would be looked down upon. And on top of that, she's been married five times, living with some guy, all these things. And she kept bringing them up, but none of it phased Jesus. He knew beyond that. Hmm. When they had called him out before for not following their customs and culture, he finally had to have a talk with them said, guys, we don't operate that way. That's not God. That's prejudice. That's stupid. You need to stop doing that. Yeah. And he only had three years to get that message across. So he didn't beat around the bush when they made mistakes. He discipled them. We need to be honest with one another in times like that. Yeah. So anyway, Amen. Yet. so you've been a disciple for a long time now. And your whole life since being a disciple has been based on the Bible, on the Word of God. Um, I, I studied the Bible with a lot of young people in college or disciple young people. Uh, who are in my campus ministry. And, and the question always comes up, right? How can we trust that the Bible is the Word of God? You know, how, how, what are some evidences, or why do we even believe that the Bible is the Word of God? This is a book that was written about uh, 2,000 years ago. And so for you, maybe from personal experience, but how can you trust that the Bible is the Word of God? If this is the book you've been living your life by and making so many decisions by why do you believe that the bible is the word of god uh, well i find it to be accurate in all that it talks about uh but more than even the scientific accuracy or just the intellectual accuracy uh no other book teaches us how to apply to our hearts things that are going to make a difference like the bible does hmm. Uh, you know, the Bible, the only book that I know, the only religion that I know that teaches that love is the most important thing. Now, it doesn't say, you know, just go pick flowers and sing uh, Kumbaya and things like that. Love means that when you're doing the wrong thing, that I disciple you, that I speak very honestly with you. Solomon says, your best friend is the one who will strike you with many blows. He said, your enemy will give you lots of kisses. Uh, I got into a Bible study with the CEO of Raytheon in Boston. He had, I think, 80,000 employees. Hmm. And I say got in a Bible study with him. I heard when I moved there that he liked to read the scriptures. And I'm, it was 15 years later that I met him. We talked some. I got him to come speak at a business meeting for me. And we talked some about our families. I said, can I drive you? Because he had a chauffeur. And so drove him and uh, drove him up to Andover and back. Got back to the office. I asked, can I read your scripture? Read him from Jeremiah 9. 
and I barely knew the man, but I respected him. He was a legendary fellow, friend of Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher. And I read him scripture from Jeremiah 9, where God says, I think it's verse 23, uh, he says, let not the wise man boast of his wisdom, the strong man of his strength, rich man of his riches. Let him who boasts boast about this, that he knows and understands me, that I'm God and exercise justice and mercy in the land, for in these I delight. I looked across the table at his corporate office. I said, Mr. Phillips, I introduced you today. I said nice things about you. I didn't want him to feel like I was buttering him up to get a better job. I said, I just want to remind you, you're not as important as God. Hmm. And he looked up and smiled at me. Told him later, I knew I could be fired for that. He said, Jack, I've got 80,000 people that work for me. I've got a church that I go to. Everybody tells me things I like to hear. Hmm. They want to please me. Nobody tells me what I need to hear. He really appreciated that. So we started getting together every week, reading the Bible and praying together. Wow. He gave me a lot of advice. I gave him some, and he had a tremendous influence on my life. But uh, people really appreciate friends who are honest. Yeah, uh, We may not like that to start with, but when we learn that they really care about us, we're going to follow that. So uh, if you apply those things, people are going to see the difference. Yeah. I had a, a fellow employee at Raytheon. Uh, there were four of us in the company that designed rockets. Uh, he was a handsome guy, very smart. He came into my office after 10 years one day with tears in his eyes. He said, Jack, my wife's asked me to leave. Uh, she's found out I've been having affairs. I have two teenage kids. He said, you've invited me to Bible studies for 10 years, and I made fun of you behind your back. He hmm. said, I don't know where to go now. There are people all around us that need the wisdom from the Bible that's why I believe the Bible, because you can take a person in any situation like yeah. myself and you show them how to live their lives with the scriptures and it will be dramatically different. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That is better proof to me than anything I could quote you or any science you could call out. And there's plenty of the other stuff too, but yeah, uh, people are hungry for something that will help them know how to live their lives. We have the answers right before us. Absolutely. We need to demonstrate them and we need to teach them. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I grew up going to church. I grew up in a spiritual bubble, in a religious bubble. And <clears throat> when I went up to college, I, I sort of drifted away from my faith. I was spoon fed the Bible my whole life, <clears throat> growing up, going to Catholic schools. and But, you know, after a year of partying and drinking my freshman year, my sophomore year, I ordered a Bible from Amazon. I started to read the Bible for the first time. And I remember reading, starting with the book of Matthew, I started reading the book of Matthew, and I got to Matthew chapter 16, where Jesus says, you know, if you're going to follow me, you have to deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow me. You know what I mean? And I remember thinking, whoa, this is impactful. Like, Jesus here is calling me to follow him, to deny myself. And that was before I even studied the Bible. But just thinking, this passage is relevant to my situation right now, to deny myself. And over the years, I've just seen it impact my life. But then the the lives of the people I, I've studied the Bible with, my friends, and just how relevant it is. Although it was written hundreds and hundreds of years ago, it still applies to our lives. That's Hebrews 4, right? The scriptures are, is alive and active. Um, mm -hmm. And so you've been around so many ministers over the years, whether it's Wyndham or um, even Tom Brown right now. Um, let me ask you this. Like, when you look at all the different ministers you've been around, what makes an effective minister? Uh, what are some of, the, some of the marks of an effective minister of God? Um, you, you mentioned one thing earlier. you got to take care of your family, take care of your wife. But outside of that, what makes an effective minister? Um, you know, it, it is important to be effective. You know, second Peter one teaches us that teaches us how to, uh, but it's very important for you to be real for people to see that you're not just intellectually honest. You know, you made the comment earlier that you grew up being spoon fed the Bible. You went to Catholic schools, et cetera. Most of us, most of us grew up with some religious training and, if we're fortunate, 
we learned a lot of things. But a lot of that was intellectual stuff. Hmm. Uh, and if we see that, if we study those things, but then we look around us, we don't see the adults around us really living by that, or we don't live by them ourselves. It really doesn't mean much. So you got to really apply those things and learn how to apply them. So, uh, you know, each person that I've worked with in the ministry, some of the most talented people, but each one of them has some different characteristics are especially good. You go back to Ephesians four, Paul says he gave some be apostles, evangelists, pastor, teachers, and, uh, those kind of gifts for building up the body. So Tom Brown, Doug Arthur, uh, William Shaw, they have different gifts. They learn from each other. They complement one another. The gifts of evangelists and pastor teachers or shepherds, uh, they're not supposed to be the same. And we learn to really value those things. Fred Fowler is one of my best friends. He's a teacher mm. there in Boston. Uh, he's such a great example of not seeking to make teachers be more important than evangelists or more important than elders. So look for those different gifts, but uh, you know, learn how to do your job well as a minister, or even if you're not a paid ministry leader, learn how to do your job well, learn how to do Bible studies well. But the biggest thing people are going to notice is they're going to notice about your life. Hmm. Paul says, Timothy, watch your life and doctrine closely. Yeah. And especially young people, you're still learning a lot of things. You'll make mistakes. Uh, old people do too, but uh, should be more proficient at that. And if you're going to serve in the ministry, you need to really learn how to be really effective at things, doing a great job in that. Uh, but uh, that goes true of any career that you're pursuing. So whatever you're doing, practice it well. And ask other people how you're doing. Fred Fowler used to tell us that if you want to be a teacher, try teaching some and see what the people say about you. Hmm. They'll tell you if you're good or not. Uh, it's not just something that you have to decide yourself. Yeah. And if you're not good at that, find something else, find what you are good at Yeah. and yeah. practice that. You can still teach some, you know, elders are supposed to be apt to teach. They say, yeah, Paul says, so we should be capable of teaching, but you know, Fred Fowler is a better teacher than I am. Doug Jacoby's a better teacher than I am, but uh, I can go out there and teach some lessons. So those are things that relate to being effective. Yeah. Their characteristics. Wyndham was gifted in wisdom uh, far beyond his years. Hmm. I learned so much wisdom from him. Uh, Tom Brown is a quintessential evangelist. He has vision. And one thing that stands out about Tom more than anything is how much he prays. Hmm. I've learned to pray about things from him so much. Wow. Uh, I learned how to play Frisbee with Doug Arthur. You know, he's not <laughs> quite as good as I am, but he's good. <laughs> things like that. <laughs> Jack, what I love about you, man, it doesn't seem like you're slowing down anytime soon. And you know, you could retire and just go play golf. But let me ask you this: What are some of your dreams going forward? Uh, as you're, you know, you're you're definitely older. You're definitely in the last, you know, maybe in the fourth quarter year. But what are some of your dreams here uh, as you look forward to your life? Oh. I guess my biggest dream is to uh, train others to do the things I'm doing. Hmm. And I do my best to do that uh, with people all over the world, teach my children. Uh, of course, uh, one, of the, one of the things I want to teach more than anything is uh, I want you guys to know how much I love my wife. Hmm. I want you to imitate that. Yes. Uh, I ask the brothers often, how are you treating your wife? I asked Phil Arsenal, you, you can tell him, if you ask him, what's the one thing Jack Frederick will ask me for the last 30 years? It's always, have you taken your wife on a date? And uh, that's the first thing Phil always tells me when I see him. So I try to teach those things, uh, give the gifts I can, but most of all, I try to model that and encourage others to uh, follow that example. And uh, of course, you know, loving my wife and family even though my kids are grown, I still have a responsibility with them. Yeah. And I still help them a lot. I have a lot of other young people, old people, et cetera. Amen. So those are kind of the, the dreams that I have. I wish I had time to spend with each one of you often and travel around the world and do that. 
Uh, I'm getting older, so I'm not as capable of those things, but uh, I love every minute I get to be with you. Amen. Um, last question here. Uh, you've been a disciple now how many years? 50 years, be 51 this year. 51 this year. That's incredible right there. Um, what has helped you? Because it's one thing to make Jesus Lord, right, 51 years ago to get baptized, to say Jesus is Lord. But it's a whole other ball game to continue saying Jesus is Lord every single day, every single week, every single year. What has helped you to continue making Jesus Lord over the years? Uh, above anything else is just my gratitude. I, uh, I came from a place of feeling so low self-esteem, um, a lot of things like that when I was young. And uh, being accepted by God was really impressive. Uh, when I went to Auburn, I was reading the Bible, uh, but I met three or four guys that went somewhere to watch a football game, and they, uh, they all went to church there, so they invited me out and went with them. But uh, the first few times I went to church, I kept noticing that people asked me my name, wanted to know who I was, and I thought uh, – I've never been important to anybody like that other than my family. Hmm. And I didn't understand it, frankly. But if you look over in the story of the Gerasene demoniac in Luke chapter eight, uh, the man was possessed by demons, legion. And when Jesus got out of the boat, he came down the hill screaming at Jesus hmm. who cast the demons out. But uh, you got a man who lived in the graveyard, wore no clothes, you imagine if you were walking by the graveyard there in Brighton one night, yeah, big naked man came running out screaming at you. What would you do? Run away. <laughs> you tell you land speed record going the other way. Exactly. But Jesus' response to that man was, "What is your name?" Hmm. You know, the Bible tells people tried to bind that man with chains and he broke them. So he's strong. He's naked. That's not a pretty sight. Um, and he came screaming at Jesus. And Jesus says, what's your name? Hmm. Uh, I can relate more to that man than anybody else in the Bible. Hmm. Uh, Tom Jones asked me to write a chapter in a devotional book 20 years ago about evangelism because my family had been baptizing a lot of people. Uh, a couple of them were in college. Anyway, um, I wrote about that and I shared that that was the guy that I relate most to because I remember when I first started coming to church, people want to know my name. Nobody wow. cared who I was before that. Yeah. And that really means a lot to people who haven't had friends like that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I'll add one more thing. You know, you mentioned the 50 years and going through things. Uh, after college, even while we were in college, my wife and I began leading teen ministry where we were because we were involved as a married couple. So the elders asked us to do that. Got out of college within a month. We asked to lead the teen ministry where we were. And it became a campus ministry. Did that for about 10 years. Baptized a lot of people our age and older and led the teen ministry and campus ministry. But we had some conflicts with the elders because we were talking about making disciples and discipling. That was kind of a new idea in many of the churches of Christ. And they associated with Boston and they thought Boston was a bad thing at that time. So we were disfellowshipped from this large church. That was very painful because I loved those elders and yeah. the people, thousand people that were really close to, but I stuck by my convictions. One of the elders spoke to my wife, who's a gentle and quiet person, said, uh, Gail, we don't really have a problem with you, but you're married to Jack, so you can't come to church here wow. either. That really does a lot for your ego. My daughter, Sarah, who's Melissa's age, had uh, just finished the first grade that day. But even Sarah stood beside us, and she never seemed bothered about that. Now, a few years later, they came back and apologized. Wow. Now they asked me to come there and teach them about discipling and making disciples because all the churches in the world suddenly have decided discipling is a really good thing. Yeah. But I say that to say that was a really traumatic experience. It hurt a lot. But if you recall when Jesus in John chapter 6 it says that lots of disciples left him. I'm thinking thousands. Hmm. When our churches don't do well, a lot of people leave. It really weighs us down. But that happened to Jesus. Yeah. He had the same experience we did. 
And you remember Jesus turned to the 12 and said, do you want to leave also? Cause I'm not going to water it down any for you. Hmm. Remember what, what Peter said to him at that he, point? He said, Lord, to whom shall we go? Right. Yeah. There ain't no other boat going. Yeah. That's how I feel. And, you know, we've always got to deal with our churches evolving. We're mm-hmm. going to run into different questions and things that may divide us. And the pandemic's been hard on us, but I'm holding on to the Bible, which is the gospel, the good news about Jesus and the story about God. Mm-hmm. And I'm holding on to my faith and I hold on as many brothers and sisters as I can. And I realize I'm going to have to always be listening to the other voices, but I ain't going nowhere else. You know, there's nowhere else to go. Hmm. I haven't seen any other churches that are teaching the scriptures as well as we do. And then applying them in life. Yeah. A lot of people have more intellectual knowledge, but they don't know how to apply it. One of the most overlooked scriptures in the Bible is a simple teaching Jesus did about how to resolve conflicts. Matthew five, Matthew 18. We don't do a great job applying that in the churches but most churches don't even think about that. Yeah, They get hurt and they just pull away from each other. You got a lot of people my age that don't even talk to their siblings anymore. Uh, I celebrated yesterday my brother's 60th wedding anniversary. Wow. Uh, when I get together with my brothers, it's like uh, just a party anytime we're together. Even my grandchildren notice how unusual that is that I'm so close to my brothers. But I try to create that among the disciples as well. But, you know, there's a lot of people going to hurt us, you know, mm-hmm. Wyndham Shaw hurt me sometimes, man, we butted heads often. Mm-hmm. Sometimes the other elders said, we got to get together and talk with you too. You know, but we were best friends. I owe more to Wyndham than probably any other person who taught me so much. I love that guy so much. Wow. You're going to butt heads with people you love, especially if you're trying to do what's right. Yeah. Don't give up on each other. Don't let anything divide you and keep holding on to the gospel. Amen. Amen, Jack. Well, thank you so much for making the time here. Um, Your life, Mm. your story is incredible. And I just love that you're not slowing down and you're impacting so many people uh, down in Georgia, but around the country with your wisdom, with your love, your example, Um, your marriage uh, is such a light, it's such an example to us all. And and I'm so grateful uh, for you and your life and all that you're doing. Please send me your wife's phone number. I'd like to ask her what kind of husband you're being and father. Absolutely. I'll do that. You better hope that you get a good report, brother. I'll be crossing my fingers. I'll be saying some prayers. Thank you so much, Jack. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you enjoy listening to this podcast, hit the subscribe button and spread the word about it. See you next time.